Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Daniel Engber, contributing editor at Slate. Josh and Stefan are out, so I'll be your limited-time-only special edition guest host on Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 5th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll be joined by tennis superfan and super podcaster Carl Bialik to talk about automated officiating, the death of the line judge in tennis, and when we should expect the referee robots to rise up and become our sports overlords. Then Mike Pesca of The Gist will drop by to discuss the orgy of intentional losing that now seems to be taking place in the NBA and whether it can or should be stopped. And finally, Dr. Florentina Hatinga of the University of Essex will join us to talk about the Winter Paralympic Games in Korea, which start on Friday, and some of the confusing and interesting issues around the science of elite athletes with disabilities. Joining me from Slate's Washington, D.C. office as my co-guest host this week is David Epstein, formerly of ProPublica and Sports Illustrated, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Sports Gene Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Hello, David. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, David, I want to start by saying I've always been impressed by the breadth of your uh, of your work and talent, but um, I just came across what I think is maybe your, your last published article, which is an editorial in the journal of the American Academy of Ophthalmology? Uh, well, I published an obituary for Sir Roger Bannister yesterday, so you're out of date now. <laughs> okay. Um, last Thursday, tennis writer Cindy Schmerler published a piece in the New York Times about a new umpiring technology that debuted last November at the next-gen ATP finals in Milan, and then was tried again at the Delray Beach Open a few weeks ago, called Hawkeye Live, it's a radical extension of the multi-camera system that's been in place at major tennis events for more than a decade. That one only comes into play when players make a formal challenge of a call made by a human line judge or chair umpire. With Hawkeye Live, this human element has been removed altogether. Now the computer system judges every shot instantaneously, and when one misses, a recorded voice yells out. The players in Milan seemed... Impressed by the system, according to press reports, and Schmerler says the governing body of men's professional tennis will be meeting in London this summer to discuss wider implementation of the technology. But there are some doubters. One tour veteran, Jesse Levine, complained to Schmerler about the lack of a human element that creates suspense. It's not in the tradition of tennis, he told her. Joining us to discuss what might or might not be in the tradition of tennis and whether we should care is Carl Bialik, host of the 30 Love podcast and co-host of the Tennis Abstract podcast. Hello, Carl. Hello. Glad to be here. Carl, you've been covering this topic for a very long time, or um, at least since 2005, I think, when Hawkeye was just about to be used for the first time in a Grand Slam. That's right. I've been following it from before it was an official system and just a TV system. I, I'm curious, what was, uh, since you have the long view here, what was the reaction uh, from players and fans back then at the start? I think whether deliberate or not, the strategy to first introduce it just as a TV tool and to give TV viewers, but not live viewers, the truth of what had just happened, or at least the best technological approximation to it, which was better than on average the best human approximation of it, turned out to be a great tool for creating a lot of appetite for Hawkeye in the sport. Players would find out after matches that key points on which they lost the point on a call they thought was wrong turned out to be right. The call was wrong, and they lost the match. Or sometimes they got the 
psychological healing after the fact when it was too late of knowing, in fact, that ball they hit was out and they could just move on to the next point and not dwell on it. And of course, in so many sports, you can often have this weird imbalance between the experience the home viewer and the and the live viewer has, where the live viewer has the less information. And Hawkeye was an example of that until it was shown on the video boards, which of course they wouldn't do until it was an official review, because mm-hmm. if you showed it, but it didn't overturn the call, bedlam could ensue, especially at the U.S. Open. So the the there was demand from the players then because they felt like they would get the the more just outcome in the match. You can imagine as soon as they picked up their phone after the match, they might have 20 text messages saying, hey, you know that call you complained about? You were absolutely right, and also those other three. In fact, it happened to Serena Williams in a big match at the U.S. Open, which a lot of people point to as the sort of straw that broke the camel's back of, of I guess you could say Luddite views in the sport towards the replay technology. So one thing I wonder about it when I watch tennis is, um, and you may have a simple answer for this, you know, when when we're watching football or baseball, the replay is just a video replay. In tennis, it's this sort of computer reconstruction of what happened. Why not just show us, you know, a video camera down the line and we can see just like we see whether a wide receiver lands his toe inbounds? It's a terrific question. The simplest answer is that the raw video is very, very slowed down, and so it does not look like tennis. It has to be so slowed down because of the speed of some of these shots, up to 150 miles per hour for the serves, and the spin of some of these shots, and the 4,000s in revolutions per minute. So the, the cameras are incredibly powerful at capturing so many images per second, but to actually show a replay that would tell you with any sort of confidence what happened on a really close call, you slow it down so much, and it looks like if you've ever seen those slow motion videos of a bullet being shot through an apple or something like that. It, it is so slow that it doesn't look like reality anymore. It's not a great experience. That said, Hawkeye is not the only game in town. That's the company that powers the main uh, version of Replay, and as you mentioned, Hawkeye Live. But there are competitors, including Fox 10 and the WTA, the women's tour. And there they actually do show the video after they show the recreation. So I think the recreation, what it does is, oddly and somewhat uncannily, even though it is a simulation, it does try to replicate the experience of watching a tennis point. In fact, Hawkeye in recent years has made it even more uncanny by combining the two, where you see the video replay, you see the shot in the air, and then it changes as it's as the ball is moving to the recreation of the shot. I think it's also useful that they make a simulation because it does tell the viewer and the players and the umpire even this is a recreation. So there is some uncertainty here, or at least I hope they get that message. So with Hawkeye Live, there's no replays at all. I mean, there's no challenge. Like what would, you already heard the final answer. <laughs> no, exactly. It's, it's, it's replicating with the camera and algorithmic technology the experience before Hawkeye, really, because it's a call only when the ball is out, because that's how tennis works. You don't want to yell out on every shot in. It would be pretty distracting and annoying. So every time Hawkeye has sensed the ball is out, the recording yells out, and that's it. And I think the players, it was, it was fun to watch how confused the players seemed because <laughs> they were so used to being able to challenge, and they looked around, and there was no one to, to, to meet their, gla- <laughs> their gaze because that was it. Hawkeye had already announced its decision. David, would you, if, uh, if Hawkeye Live spread or such things spread through other sports too, would you miss the uh, old-style, now old-style instant replay? I think I would, but not a ton. And I think there are plenty of opportunities to uh, restore some of that excitement. Like for me, one of the things that got me reinterested in baseball was all the sort of new statistics and data you could get. And in this case, you know, based on I've seen I've seen occlusion studies done where part of a, a player's body is blocked in tennis, and, and so I'm aware that elite tennis players can judge where a ball's going just from seeing some body motions. They don't even have to see the ball really. So I, my guess is that. When they do dispute a call, by and large, they are correct. And I think it'd be really cool to be in the stadium, give these spectators a clicker, and when there's a close call, they can wisdom of the crowd it and try to say if it was in and out versus the player. You know, and you could do that in a couple seconds. And I think it would be, you know, it would make for some really interesting segments on anticipatory skill of elite athletes. Uh, People could learn wisdom of the crowd a little bit and see how it works. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways that we could replace the excitement um, while getting the accuracy. Now, I, I saw that uh, initially Roger Federer was opposed to Hawkeye. It makes sense that Federer would be opposed to any changes mm-hmm. to a sport <laughs> that he dominates. Um, but now he's 
he's more into it, although he still complains that uh, at night they can't use it. Uh, that uh, that struck me as bizarre. Why why isn't this why isn't this system usable in, in the evening? And it, it just seems like a, a a weird choice to have this technology that you're using only at certain hours of the day. Well, so you agree with that, or you know, it's funny that it developed this this near certainty among commentators. You would hear it during almost very every Federer match when either he missed a challenge or his opponent succeeded on a challenge. Well, Federer hates Hawkeye. And I kept hearing it. And so finally, I went looking for what is the quote? What is the source for this? <laughs> and I think it was some interview where he said, well, I'm not really sure. I like the tradition. It was something typically bland and Swiss and neutral. <laughs> and otherwise, there was basically no evidence other than just the game of tennis commentary, telephone and repetition. And then when somebody did finally ask him in press, and, and the funny thing about the way tennis press conferences go is that there are only so many questions you can ask, and almost everyone wants to ask the same question, so ask in a different way. And it's something like, what makes you such a wonderful person and player, Roger? <laughs> so it, it, it takes a while to get substantive questions asked. Finally, he was asked, and what he said was, one of the most accurate things I've ever heard about this system. It's really good. I'm glad we have it. It's not 100% accurate. He didn't say this, but despite it maybe looking like it is based on how it's depicted with zero uncertainty on the big screen and on the TV... But still, 99% is really good. I like it so much that it seems unfair and ridiculous that we're expected to play at night when the system can't work, which, you know, as I mentioned before, this is a fallible system, and it, the, the darkness can affect it just like people obstructing it can affect it. And there's a real bias in TV sports where because the, the lighting adjustment is so good, the screen the viewer sees at home is much brighter than the real screen. So there's a famous... Oh. The, probably the greatest match of the last decade, at least, some people say ever, was the 2008 Wimbledon final between Federer and Nadal. And if they had had to play one more game, the match would have been suspended till the next day for darkness. And at home, people didn't really understand why that was happening. And everyone who's there live says, we were shocked they were able to play the last two games and play them as well as they could. We could barely see the ball. So I think his point is great. Either play a match with Hawkeye or play it without. At almost every major tournament, actually not including Indian Wells, which is happening these two weeks, there are at least some courts that don't have Hawkeye. But at least if you start on the court without Hawkeye, you play your whole strategy knowing you won't have recourse to the challenge. Yeah, I mean, it really, uh, in sort of a metaphorical way, calls attention to the fact that we're in this sort of twilight phase of accepting and understanding the technology. Like, it's it's just bizarre. I mean, I would think that at night, maybe Hawkeye wouldn't work as well, but neither would the line judge. And do we know that the the degradation quality of of Hawkeye is is greater than the degradation quality of the line judge? Yeah, I mean, there's so many studies you'd want to do. And the way these systems tend to work is that the ITF, which is the International Tennis Federation, the standard-making body for tennis, which is a little strange thing to say because tennis is so splintered, and that's a topic for another episode, that it's not clear if anyone totally makes the standards. But if anyone does, it's the ITF. And what they do is they set a strict threshold of what error tolerance a system needs to meet. And any Hawkeye competitor has to sort of meet that same threshold. And the threshold is very conservative, as it probably should be, but has it really been studied in terms of should we shift the threshold in lower light situations because, as you say, it's competing with an eroded human judgment Mm -hmm. in lower light conditions as well. David, I wanted to uh, come back to one of the points you made about baseball. I also was I saw some of the things that Carl's written have been about how these uh, tennis technologies allow people to understand their games and what's going on on the court a little better. The weird thing about baseball, right, is I may be wrong about this, but don't doesn't the league use the um, the pitch FX data or whatever system they're using to evaluate umpires and and make you know hiring and firing decisions? Yeah, they they use that data, which is why I think it's strange that. You know, I've seen statements from the commissioner saying, well, it's not it's not accurate enough yet, you know, and specifically citing, um, you know, like the size range of players from Aaron Judge to Jose Altuve, you know, we're talking over a foot of size difference. And what if one guy crouches a little bit more? How should that affect his strike zone? And so I, I find it odd and I'm not sure if it's totally honest. It could be that they're saying, well, it's not it's not totally accurate enough when the data is used for all sorts of um, other stuff in including, of course, showing all the viewers at home in real time as if it's like a missile intercepting system. And then, you know, you can see it instantly. And then some guy who has like a half obstructed view a couple seconds later makes the call on TV. So, yeah, I find that kind of uh, confusing, their their statements about it. What I think, 
I mean, it's one thing if, to use the for the TV, you know, uh, broadcast to use that information uh, and to share with the fans. And it's another, and you know, different teams could try to use that data to make smart decisions, right? They they, they all understand what the, uh, the the team certainly understand the potential error in the data. I just think it's odd that you have this system that can be used to evaluate the human umpires, and then. Uh, at the same time, you don't want to replace the human umpire. So, like, you're admitting <laughs> that the system is better than the umpires if you're using it as kind of the gold standard against which the umpires are measured. It's like you're trying to turn the human into the machine. Why don't you just use the machine? If the <laughs> yeah. human matches the machine right. perfectly, the machine's available. I mean, I think it kind of almost answers itself. Right? The, the, the machine's probably been better than the humans for a long time, but of all the hidebound sports, right, baseball, it's like— I'm sure it would look funny to me if there were nobody standing behind the catcher tomorrow. So I think it's... That's well, and I, I also think the argument, you know, they're both called umpires. I think in both sports, one thing will at least that will at least delay that moment where we don't see anyone behind the catcher. And I guess the ads are less obstructed. So maybe there's a financial incentive there mm. is that umpires do do other things. I mean, yeah. they do sort of control the game. They do throw out the player who's, uh, you know, I guess yelling at them often. So maybe it would be yelling at a machine, but the machine can't throw them out. So... In, in tennis, it might be an even bigger part of the of the justification for the umpire because they do a lot of things, and they also are not actually that involved in line calling. They just overrule calls they think are wrong. Mm. But, yeah, I think in a lot of these sports, the sort of best-case scenario for the officials is that the technology really allows them to focus on all the other things right. that only people can do. And if they show themselves to be good at those things, they're they're still not replaceable. And and also, if, if of course, this is just a... Sports are just contrivances. So if we decide that having them there really is part of the enjoyment, I'm sure we can figure out something for them to do. <laughs> well, it sounds like all I go to the game for the referees all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so are, we're are, are we all we're all pro uh, robot umpiring, right? <laughs> That's the sense I get. But maybe I'm misinterpreting well, I, I one really, of the two of you. I really th- like what David just said, and one of the things we haven't really talked about is, as I said, this is really replacing the line judges. And we haven't talked about who these line judges are, and it's not a full-time job. Some of them aspire to eventually be full-time umpires. Some of them are just local, you know, people who maybe call like a local amateur tournament or are friends with the tournament, pass some very minor test. So on the one hand, it's it's a reason why even at a tournament like Wimbledon or the, or the U.S. Open, I think especially Wimbledon, where tens of millions of pounds or dollars are at stake, you'll, you could have someone who's really not very good or experienced at it. But it's also part of the charm, I think, of the sport. It's a way to have these people who aren't these completely stone-faced and decades-experienced professionals calling these important moments in a match. So to David's point, if it is part of the appeal of the sport, then they should stay. Now, I guess we'll find out. I mean, Milan experimented. Delray Beach experimented. I always wonder with experiments, especially in sports, has anyone bothered to ask, what are we trying to optimize for and do we measure it? So if they have some way of checking if fans miss these people and then they actually check them and do it in a smart way, then they can make a smart decision. I am not totally confident that's happening. Maybe we can have another uh, multi-camera system set up in the stadium that's trained on a representative sample of fans' faces and can do some kind of (laughs) emotional analysis. You you kid, but there's a study out at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. It was actually an update of a previous study about studying tennis players' faces and their emotions and comparing the big four in men's tennis on how often they're angry or sad. So if you can do it to the players, you just need more cameras, you can do it to the fans. I think you'll mostly see they're looking down at their phones. I was going to say, who's who's the saddest tennis player? Uh, So part of the problem with the study (laughs) and just with tennis data generally, it was all based on one Australian Open. (laughs) It happened to be the 2017 Australian Open. Federer won the final against Nadal. And then Murray lost in the fourth round and Djokovic lost in the second round. And the data kind of lined up with how well they did at the tournament. (laughs) That is one of the least surprising findings in in the history of sports I'm selling it short because there were so many different emotions. And Andy Murray (laughs) did kind of hit the ones you would hope he would based on all the things you would think about watching him play tennis. That's really Carl Bialik, host of the 30 Love podcast and co-host of the Tennis Abstract podcast. Carl, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the incredible race to the bottom that's now in progress in the NBA, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, David and I will discuss Sir Roger Bannister, the legendary athlete, writer, and neurologist who was the first to run the sub-four-minute mile in 1954 and passed away on Saturday at the age of 88. David had the chance to profile Bannister for Sports Illustrated in 2011 and stayed in touch with him in the years that followed. If you want to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. It's been called the golden season of NBA tanking and the NBA tanking campaign of a lifetime. More than half a dozen of pro basketball's very worst teams are engaged in a thrilling battle royale for pro sports inferiority, an all-out scrum for the most ping-pong balls in the next draft lottery. I just checked tankathon.com, my new favorite source for upside-down basketball standings. Phoenix Suns are officially at the top or the bottom of the pile with an abysmal record of 19-46, and 46, but the Mavericks and Grizzlies are each just a half game back with four more very bad basketball teams, Orlando, Sacramento, Atlanta, and Brooklyn, within two games of top tank status. Jockeying for the bottom has been so fiercely anti-competitive this season that ESPN now reports certain teams are using so-called reverse analytics to optimize their losing strategies and calculating their most ineffective lineups possible on the floor. In the last few weeks, Commissioner Adam Silver signaled that he's had enough. First, he dropped a $600,000 fine on Mavs owner Mark Cuban for admitting on a podcast that he told his players losing is our best option. Then Silver sent a memo to all 30 teams telling them that tanking would not be tolerated under any circumstances. We must do everything in our power to protect the actual and perceived integrity of the game, he wrote. Joining us now to discuss the art of tanking in professional sports is a man of both actual and perceived integrity, Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, and editor of the forthcoming book, Upon Further Review, the greatest what-ifs in sports history. Mike, thanks for being here. Thank you. Golden tank. That sounds exactly <laughs> like what Donald Trump would want to commission. Mike, what do you make of uh, of Adam Silver's uh, intervention here? Um, I think that there's only so much the use of the bully pulpit can do when there's a lot of logic to tanking, but also there's a lot of illogic to our description, which is, of the eight teams you mentioned, the Nets have no... Uh, incentive at all to lose. They're just terrible. And that sometimes happens. Teams are terrible. The Grizzlies started the season. They thought they'd be good. Connolly gets hurt. At that point, if you were any rational actor, were the GM, and you look at the landscape, you probably say, don't don't mortgage the future in any way. Don't even, you kind of got to give up this season when the best, or at least the most important, and probably also the best player goes down. Third factor, to kind of put a little bit of uh, a damper on the idea of runaway tanking, is that these teams know that they are not all going to get a number one pick. And with the odds, it's unlikely that they'll get a number one or two or three pick. And at a certain point, being the fifth team or the ninth team, it kind of it's it's a lot more dependent after one, two, three on draft execution than actual draft spot. And the last thing I'd like to say is that reverse analytics is a great phrase, but isn't it just analytics? And also, <laughs> and and you, do you really need reverse analytics to tell you to shoot the, instead of the corner three, the elbow two? Like, any idiot can tell you how to be bad at basketball. Do you really need just, to know the spot on the floor that, that doesn't make it look like you're bad? You're just one of those old school sports guys who doesn't believe in analytics. <laughs> I don't, my own two That's eyes right. can tell me the worst lineup to put out on the floor. That's right. I believe in the false eye test. <laughs> Well, I resent the fact that you're putting a damper on my uh, tankathon enthusiasm. Um, I'm, one of the things about that silver memo was the phrase that I, I stuck, got stuck on was perceived integrity of the game. It feels like that's the key uh, word here, perceived, as opposed to integrity. I mean, obviously, there's going to be tanking, but he just doesn't want people to be upfront about it. He, did he find Mark Cuban for tanking, or did he find Mark Cuban for divulging that he was tanking? Because I don't think Adam Silver could do anything uh, short of a rule change, which is what he should do. He cannot do anything just by naming and shaming to stop this extremely logical behavior. But what he can do is say, shut up about it, guys. And Mark Cuban is probably the one guy you do want to uh, find because he's the only one with, who's r with really a brand outside of the NBA 
So getting him to every other every other owner knows to shut up about tanking. There's no reason they should be talking at all. But Cuban likes to go to the press. And I don't know, maybe there's some sort of shark tank, Mavs <laughs> tank connection going on here. Well, there's sort of an interesting backstory there. So the one of the reasons this tanking is happening is that there was a draft lottery reform passed yeah. in the NBA. So after this upcoming lottery, this is the, the last one in the present system, it's, it's going to be uh, changed. So I think the bottom three teams all have the same, you know, 15% chance at the number one pick. So this is like your last chance to get in on the old, you know, tanking, uh, maximize your tank value. But it's not that max, right? It's not, but it's still better than uh, than it'll be the year after. Right, and so this is... This is, I think, the, the, the point, one of the main points. They've done some small reforms around the edges, but they're the reforms of a person who is trying to predict someone else's behavior, the, the kind of person who's not engaging in that behavior. And so you say to yourself, well, if you lower the incentive for losing, there'll be less losing. But I think it's more of a threshold. If there is any incentive for losing, people will be incentivized to lose. It's like in 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 college basketball when they changed from the one and one, and now there was the penalty. Oh, this will get pe- this will get teams fouling less, uh, especially at the end of the game. But since there is no shot to win if you don't foul, it doesn't matter how bad the penalty is. Teams are going to foul. So maybe with tanking, they've lowered your odds of improving your team with that great draft pick from eight percent to two percent. But since you're up against 0% of, uh, of winning and not making and being the seventh team and not making the playoffs, you're still going to tank. David, is, do you think there's any joy in tanking? I mean, I did kind of get excited with, as I said, I've been going to tankathon.com and I'm, I'm sort of into it now, um, even as a, uh, you know, a, a fan of New York teams who are both in, in the, they're, they're both in it. New York <laughs> and Brooklyn can both, can both get the gold or whatever. Um, do you enjoy any of this, or does it just seem like an eyesore on professional sports? Well, I think it's very interesting, and especially since it's not affecting any team that uh, I have a great interest in, um, and then I'm more interested in sort of interesting stats and reverse analytics or analytics or whatever we're calling them now. Uh, I think this is actually in some ways an interesting way to make relevant uh, part of the season for teams that if they were winning just a little bit more – uh, their seasons would be pretty much equally depressing and even more uninteresting. Um, so I'm not advocating tanking, but I am advocating as long as people are tanking, making interesting statistical sites about it, because why would anybody pay attention anymore if they were just winning a few more games? I mean, the team's bad enough. you know. And, and I, I agree with Mike that lowering the incentive to tank isn't going to take it away, so you should still do the same thing, although maybe that goes to... Adam Silver's note about the appearance of, of lowering the incentives being more important. Um, but, you know, I think the 76ers a couple of years ago, by tanking in the most obvious way possible, sort of ruined it for everybody uh, now. But as long as people are going to tank, I think let's keep um, making interesting ways to, to analyze it. Because I wouldn't be paying attention to the New York team's seasons whatsoever right now if it weren't the analytics <laughs> of tanking. Well, let's go back to Silver's message. I mean, one of the things uh, that I've enjoyed about this commissioner is his uh, willingness to talk openly about things that, you know, other commissioners might have pretended didn't exist, like gambling. I feel like I want Adam Silver to just do just like you said and just embrace the fact that there is tanking or at least not make a stink about trying to hide it. I mean, it seems sort of counterproductive, like... The more uh, he sends memos like this, the more attention will be drawn to tanking. Why doesn't he just take the same approach he's taken to gambling and apply that to tanking? It's a good point. And have you heard about Bill Simmons and other people have ideas, kind of radical ideas that I think they should use, which are tournaments before the postseason tournament. I mean, making it more exciting. Yes, if you're going to tank, I agree with David. Have a good website about it. However, <laughs> I'd love to see the study uh, comparing the uh, team with no hope to the team that is bad and doesn't make the playoffs. Um, I'm just looking. So I had this debate. I talked about this with the NFL, where I'm a fan of the Jets. And going into the season, all my uh, so-called smart Jet fans were like, well, I want to lose every game. I want to get the number one pick. And they were good. They were pretty good, and mainly because they had a decent quarterback. So I'm looking at the attendance records. 
the Jets had the third highest home attendance in the league. And the Browns, which were a winless, hapless team, in terms of home attendance, they're about eighth from the bottom. And in terms of home and away, they were second to last, which tells me that totally terrible teams, hopeless teams, are a lot worse for the league and a lot worse for the bottom line, no matter how many websites you could generate, a lot worse <laughs> for the actual bottom line of owners than teams that are actually trying. There's a normal distribution Well, there, there will be some terrible teams. And I do think of the eight, some are logically terrible. And I also think, let me throw this out there, maybe we're throwing the word tanking and applying it just to teams that aren't good and they're not good because they want to be good, but they're not. And I think of baseball where the third of the league is accused of tanking before the season starts, and that's mainly because the free agent there wasn't a robust free agent market. Only the Marlins really seem to be tanking. Everyone remembers the fact that it was a very useful strategy for the Cubs and definitely the Astros. So this, so Major League Baseball is accused of tanking mightily or pre-tanking, but it seems like they're just some teams who might be bad and might be good, and we'll see how it plays out. We just are a little bit in love with this word now. Yeah, the, the Marlins, when they won the World Series, they, they lost money. And so I think that sort of accelerated the, you know, their their tanking. It wasn't good for their bottom line to win. And and I agree with you that it's it's not good for an owner's bottom line to be um, absolutely horrid as opposed to just pretty bad. But you also have to think that they are uh, making an investment of sorts, hoping that they will get some scintillating high draft pick and that it'll it'll come back to them. So it's not can't consider it only that the tanking season in isolation when it comes to their bottom line, right? Okay, so we've got tanking. We've got the golden season of tanking in the NBA. We have a lot of tanking in baseball. Mike, you think this is just uh, an old thing that we've given a new uh, catchy word for? So tanking is not uh, tanking has not accelerated across sports in in hockey, baseball, football, basketball. You don't believe that? You think it's just the, we're at the same level that we always were at? No, it definitely has. It just hasn't increased to the point where we're accurately describing. Uh, who is tanking and who's not. Maybe it's like history. It can only be lived forwards but understands back, understood backwards. <laughs> um, I do think that it is th- – the bottom line for me is it's not that bad. It seems logical. Uh, we over-describe it. But also, I don't care about anyone rattling on about the integrity of the game or or perceived um, whatever whatever – Silver's phrase, do something about it. I mean, there are a lot of good ideas for fixes, and it's not, it has nothing to do with percentages and ping pong balls. There are a lot of good ideas for fixes. Execute those ideas. Well, I guess I'm just wondering if, if this is something like a new trend, and uh, you can think of it as as uh, owners or general managers exploiting an inefficiency in the system. Come, to come back to analytics, I, I mean, there are such large structural differences in how these leagues work. I mean, just intuitively, I think that tanking in baseball would not nearly be as effective as tanking in football, let's say, where you, you if you <laughs> succeed in tanking, you get the number one pick, and the number one pick could be a franchise player. That seems much less likely uh, in baseball. Yeah, I think you're right. But I think with baseball, it has to do with a lot of things like spending money, and there's no mandated floor, at least there wasn't for a long time with mandated floors for spending money. So that's more the incentive. You you increase the amount of, you increase your uh, cash reserves for the future. I would just add to the, the tanking. I think there is a, you can make a valid argument. You know, it's one thing to, to analyze your worst possible lineups and play those on purpose. But I do think you can make an argument for when a season is lost to a certain degree, um, getting some playtime for younger guys, both to evaluate them and to give them some experience. So I think there, once a team's doing really, really poorly, there may be certain things that are happening that look like tanking, but actually um, might might make a lot of sense to get someone uh, some development time. Yeah, I, th- I mean, that's the, I think, the conventional distinction between like soft tanking and hard tanking. Yeah. Soft, soft tanking is all the stuff that we think is okay. Maybe this comes back to perceived integrity that's perceived to be uh, a classy move. We're just, you know, developing our young players. Hard tanking would be, you know, the extreme Mark Cuban version where you're, you're really just telling people it. you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but but well, I, I think we should call them like M1 tanking and <laughs> MRAP tanking or amphibious assault tanking, yeah, Abrams tanking. I don't know if I think there's a, a real, I think that's kind of a bogus distinction, actually. I think it's, um, again, it's just like pretending. In, in This happens every season in baseball, even for teams that have been trying hard until the moment they're eliminated, then they're like trying to lose and it still sucks at the end when your team is like not trying to win games and just playing these uh you know calling these guys up from triple a and playing them 
Yeah, and especially with basketball, um, you do get, and maybe even with football, you do, well, I'm going to say with every sport, the (laughs) real fan can probably get more sustenance and insight and interest in that last, you know, fifth of a season that is certainly lost where they're trying these other guys versus that fifth of the season where you're trying to play your way into the ninth spot in the conference where it's it's you're just using these guys who are going to be gone in free agency or 37 anyway. Mike, you mentioned one way to fix uh, the system in the, the NBA. I liked Seth Stevenson's uh, suggestion in Slate a couple of years ago that um, each team get to choose one other team that they're going to predict as the worst record um, in the league. So you're sort of uh, buying stock in other teams. Um, but w- is there any chance that any of these will be put in place. I mean, the one draft lottery reform we had was pretty weak. Is is Adam Silver going to step up on this? Well, arguing for yes is that the idea of a playoff, especially where teams maybe get to choose their opponents, and then the winners of the playoff of the teams that aren't making the actual playoffs get the number one pick, or maybe get to uh, go to the playoffs and get a number one pick. I think the player. I think everyone would love that. I think the players would love that. I think TV would love that. It's just such a radical departure of how we've ever done sports before. Um, it's so arguing for it is it seems like a good idea, and Adam Silver likes good ideas, and it definitely <laughs> solves a problem. Arguing against it is there's maybe an economic angle just in terms of the sheer tonnage of the games, but I think that it's such a it's such a radical break. I can't see baseball moving to that. By the way, that seems baseball is the most hidebound. And also, it seems less practical in baseball. And as you said, as I said, as we all said, baseball is about maybe money saving as opposed to pick garnering. David, do you see any uh, solution to the tanking problem or non-problem as you choose to view it? Um, I, I'm, I didn't mean to suggest it's it's not a problem. I'm just taking the the uh, the ping pong ball chamber half full approach. Um, <laughs> You know, I think the way the problem is going to be attacked is exactly what Adam Silver telegraphed in his letter, which is they are going to attack the appearance of impropriety, um, not impropriety. And that's going to be enough, basically, for people that um, Mark Cuban is not going to start a tanking podcast or not talk about tanking um, on a podcast. Again, they might even rename the Shark Tank um, to Shark Not Tanking or something. But um, I think they're just going to attack the appearance of impropriety. I think it would be really hard. I think the, the tournament idea would be cool, but I think there's a lot of stuff that would have to go into that, you know, collective bargaining about the extra games and all these things. So that would be a ways off if it were going to happen. Uh, so for the near term, I think they're going to make the incentives look lower. The incentives will still exist, but people will be um, less bothered by it. And to some degree, it's all a psychological uh, game about the appearance of impropriety. And so that's where I think the action will be. Once again, uh, Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, and editor of the forthcoming book, Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. Mike, thanks for being here. You're welcome. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This Friday will be the opening ceremony of the Winter Paralympic Games in Korea, where around 670 elite athletes with physical and intellectual disabilities will compete in 80 medal events across six sports, alpine skiing, biathlon, cross-country skiing, ice hockey, snowboard, and wheelchair curling. Central to the competition is the so-called classification system, whereby individual athletes are tested to determine the nature and degree of their disabilities and how those disabilities might affect their sports performance. This is a very difficult task and one that must be adapted to changing findings in the science of sports performance. Indeed, it's been a source of controversy in the past uh, and even up to the present with widespread allegations of classification misconduct in the lead up to the 2016 Rio Games, where some athletes were said to have hacked the classification system so as to be placed in categories where they would have a greater advantage. Joining me now via Skype to discuss the science of classification and of elite performance in para-athletics more broadly is Florentina Hatinga, Senior Lecturer on Sports Habilitation and Exercise Sciences at the University of Essex. 
Dr. Hatinga, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. In the U.S., uh, we're in the middle of the National Football League scouting combine, and there's been a story that's been going around uh, just in the last couple of days. Uh, a young athlete named Shaquem Griffin from the University of Central Florida, who's a uh, linebacker with only one hand, and um, he's uh, his performance at this uh, event has been very impressive. He ran a 40-yard dash in 4.38 seconds, the fastest time for a linebacker at the Combine in 15 years. I bring this up because uh, in reading the story and seeing how it's received, it occurs to me that uh, most people don't really have a good intuition of how a disability of one kind or another might be expected to affect sports performance. Why is uh, having only one hand likely to make you a slower runner at a 40-yard dash? I think most people just don't really know. I wanted to ask you about that because I know um, you've done a lot of research on the uh, interplay of sports and disability. Can you tell us what is uh, what are the challenges of uh, doing this kind of research? I think uh, the challenges are exactly what you just described. It is very difficult um, to see how a disability impacts on sports performance and that is crucial to a good classification system. And you can imagine that it is very difficult to do that because there is a very, very large variety of disabilities physical disabilities, visual disabilities, and intellectual disabilities. And all these groups have their own classification systems, but these need to be adapted per sport as well. And the the, uh, the, the classification must be done separately for each individual sport, right? The same disability uh, might be uh, quite disadvantageous in one sport, but not another. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, how did you uh, come to be uh, doing research in this area? Um, I started my career researching uh, elite athletes, mainly in uh, speed skating and uh, cycling exercises, uh, exploring pacing strategies, so how to distribute your energy over a race. And then I moved to uh, a different job in uh, Groningen, where I started to work on disability sports and look into um, engaging people with disabilities in an active lifestyle, but also in exploring uh, people with disabilities and how their disability impacts on sports performance. And that is the link with the classification research as well. And you can imagine that a topic like pacing strategies is very important in classification of intellectual impaired athletes, which is also um, a group of um, Paralympic sports. How do intellectual disabilities affect pacing? What, what have you found when you've studied that question? I've studied this in uh, athletics with my colleagues at the University of Leuven, and we found that athletes with an intellectual disability are particularly challenged to maintain a pre-planned velocity. And if you look at uh, competitions, athletics competitions, for example, of 1500 meters, you see that athletes without intellectual disability, they typically start very fast, have then a, a slower middle part, and at the end they demonstrate an end spurt. II athletes, on the other hand, start slow, go fast in the middle, and end slow again. So it's basically the opposite of what people without intellectual disabilities demonstrate. How does that uh, finding bear on the uh, question of classification of athletes with intellectual disabilities? This finding can be used in uh, designing uh, tests to um, uh, actually classify how much the impairment, in this case the intellectual disability, impacts on a, a crucial skill um, for, for the performance. I see. So there's the, the, the first question is whether an athlete is qualifies with an intellectual disability. And then the second question would be, what is the degree of that disability? And that would determine which event uh, exactly they would participate in? Yes, indeed, because uh, in, uh, now I only mentioned the sport-specific tests um, uh, running at a prepend velocity, but another uh, central aspect that I have not mentioned yet um, is um, the general 
uh, intellectual capacity because there is also a generic skills test uh, where things like IQ, um, uh, the Tower of London test um, and uh, reaction time, things like that are measured um, to test general skills basically. And do those things have a reliable relationship to performance and in individual sports? It depends a bit per sport, and that is why research is needed. Uh, for example, uh, table tennis, which is a sport um, in which athletes with intellectual disabilities uh, compete, that is a sport where tactical proficiency is a central element. So that is something very different than pacing strategies, which are more relevant in athletic events or swimming events or maybe Nordic skiing. Now, David, I know you've done a lot of uh, research and reporting on the science of elite sports performance. Is there Have you seen any uh, ways in which the science of, of uh, para-athletics has informed what we know about elite performance, knowing you know, if, if uh, we know where, where disabilities might impact performance, that gives us a little more information about uh, what happens to athletes without disabilities? That, that's an interesting... Uh, question. You know, I think to think about while I was listening to um, uh, the discussion of pacing, you know, pacing, I think, is in some ways sort of uh, still at the forefront of um, research for able-bodied athletics. Like, I mean, there was just a, a brand new great book out called um, uh, by Alex Hutchinson, um, Endure, that is uh, largely about the central nervous system um, and its control of endurance and pacing strategies. And so I think, uh, you know, in referring to the 1500 or the mile, this pacing strategy that able-bodied athletes use where they go out fast, sort of settle in slower, and then have an end spurt, that's, that's basically like the template for anyone who's going to approach a, a world record, al- almost as if it's necessary, even though intuitively you might think they could just run an even pace. And so I think this pacing research, um, not that I'm – Uh, well-versed in it with respect to uh, intellectually disabled athletes, but is is just as much at the forefront of sort of sports research as, um, you know, as as it is with able-bodied athletes. I think, of course, the most, one of the most scrutinized cases of an athlete with a handicap was Oscar Pistorius, the double amputee um, sprinter, who I think showed some of the challenge in evaluation because he was competing in both the Paralympics and the able-bodied Olympics, which I think raised the question of, well, uh, which one is it? If he's, if, if we're going to make classifications for people with handicaps, how, how is he handicapped if he's also in the able-bodied Olympics? And some of the research that came out of that, I think, sort of helped show what some of the primary traits of an elite sprinter are, basically. Once again, this was uh, Florentina Hatinga, Senior Lecturer on Sports Rehabilitation and Exercise Sciences at the University of Essex. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now it's time for my afterball. Several obituaries for Roger Bannister mentioned that the medical student turned track legend was nicknamed the Lone Wolf Miler by his peers. David, do you know what that's all about? Well, Sir Roger, early on, he, he sort of totally did his own thing outside of the um, running community, but that that kind of changed later. I think he realized when he wanted to stage an assault on the sub four mile, he um, started working with a famous coach named Franz Stompfel, and he recruited uh, two of his peers to pace him. So he had excellent pacing from two of his peers in the sub four uh, mile attempt, but he was he was very much doing his own thing and making his own training and all those sorts of things for quite a while. Um, but I think it was, I, th- I think actually he even wrote about realizing that he would be better off um, with a coach and, and with some peers to work with. And so eventually he, he joined. I see. So this is, a, this is really like a defunct nickname, a nickname that, that <laughs> only applied briefly in his life. Well, m- maybe, I'd say maybe it applied for 
um, most of his running career, just not the most important part. Okay. Well, as our lone wolf after baller for this week, I will nonetheless uh, honor the legacy of Sir Roger uh, with my own lone wolf miler. (laughs) On January 16th, in the first round of the Australian Open, local favorite Ashley Barty defeated an impressive 19-year-old Belarusian named Arena Sabalenka in three sets, 6-7, 6-4, 6-4. Media coverage of their match didn't dwell on Barty's comeback, though, or the dynamic play of her opponent. Instead, the press focused on Sabalenka's vocal tics, a barrage of grunts, yelps, and screams that stood out even among her peers. Barty would later say these noises had not been a distraction. Everyone has a bit of a different grunt, she said. You get used to it. But the Australians' home court fans were having none of this. At one point, they began to mock Sabalenka's shrieks from the stands. And when the chair umpire called for silence, it only made the problem worse. Please. Yeah, oh dear. I think the umpire needs to just stay out of, <laughs> just stay out of it right now. Of course, this is just the latest round of groaning over grunting in professional tennis, whether it's described as a sleazy form of cheating since it distracts opponents or just an annoying, ugly sideshow in a beautiful sport. I'm not the first to point out that there's at least a whiff of sexism in groan policing on the internet, which seems far more attuned to and annoyed by grunting women like Sabarenka or Maria Sharapova than man-grunters like Rafa Nadal. Indeed, the great grunt debate has so far had more to do with aesthetic judgments than any hard scientific facts. I bring this up because I've just come across a brand new study from University of Hawaii psychologist Scott Sinnett and his colleague Alan Kingstone at the University of British Columbia that finally brings some science to bear on this question. Is grunting unfair? Is it a form of cheating in tennis? Now, before getting into the details of their study, Sinet and Kingstone give us a quick history of research in the science of gruntology. They begin with a classic work of gruntological research published in 1961 entitled Some Factors Modifying the Expression of Human Strength. For that experiment, researchers checked how people's forearm strength changed in the presence of various factors, including alcohol. I would guess that that would make people less strong. Amphetamine, maybe more strong. While they were being hypnotized, I have no idea what effect that would have on one's strength or subjected to loud noises. But most relevant to our topic today, the researchers also checked if, in their words, the subject's own outcry would affect his or her strength. And indeed it did, by 12%. So here we have some very early evidence that grunting does work, at least on the grunter, as a kind of vocal doping. Now, there were some replication problems in this area. A study of grunting among power lifters found no effect, but that's been resolved. Scientists in Texas got a bunch of Division II and three collegiate tennis players together and had them do a run of serves in forehands, some while grunting and some while not grunting, again making sounds charged them up. Their grunt shots were faster and more powerful than any others. Lest you think this is not rigorous research, they controlled for a host of potential confounds, including gender, years of experience playing tennis, grunt history, and the perception of grunting's value. Okay, so far so good. We know, or we have good reason to think that grunting is a performance boost for the grunter. But that's really only half the story. I mean, if grunting improves the game of the grunter, I don't think that it would be fair to call it cheating. It's just a a method that a tennis player might use to improve his or her game. It seems unfair to say you're not allowed to grunt, just it would be unfair to say you're not allowed to position your feet in a certain way or to follow through on your swing in a certain way if it improves your strokes. Now enter Sinet and Kingstone and. 2010, they put out their first study of grunting. Uh, They took a bunch of students and had them watch video clips of tennis shots being hit either down the line or cross court and asked the students to judge the shot's direction as quickly as they could. Now, what they wanted to see here was what effect grunting might have on the gruntee, on the opponent of the grunting player. So they added in a 
sort of experimental grunt, which was really just a 60 decibel blip of white noise, not as loud as a real grunt on a tennis court. They were being conservative. And uh, the students would see, would hear this white noise on certain trials as the player in the video struck the ball. What they found was that the students were significantly slower by 20 to 30 milliseconds at guessing which direction the ball was going to go, and they made more errors by 3 to 4 percent. So now things are getting complicated. We know that grunting works for the grunter. It sort of adds to their strength and, and, and makes their shots more powerful, but it also does seem to do something to the opponent. Now, this is consistent with what some tennis players have said, complaining that it's you know a form of cheating, it's distracting, or that it makes it. Martina Navratilova in two thousand nine said that you know when Monica Seles was grunting against her in the early nineties, she couldn't figure out, she couldn't hear the sound of the ball off the racket, and that was messing with her game. So that's the question: Does grunting uh, grunting does seem to to have a negative effect on the other player? But it's not clear exactly what it's doing. Um, is it just annoying and therefore distracting the way, you know, a firecracker would be distracting? Or is it, you know, more devious and concealing, as Navratilova suggested, is it concealing some information that an expert player would use? So Sinet and Kingstone had an idea. Gruntological research was stuck on this question for years. But right now, they've just put out a study where they had the idea to look at grunting in mixed martial arts. And the plan there was, if you're looking at fighters who are grunting as they kick. This might have the effect of distracting the opponent, uh, but it wouldn't be concealing anything. There's no analog to the ball striking the racket. There's no analog to Martina Navratilova, you know, missing a cue that she would otherwise use. So they thought if we look at mixed martial arts, we can try to separate out these two possibilities, just blatant distraction or concealing behavior. So first they tested whether grunting makes an, an MMA fighter kick harder, and indeed it did. The kick force was 24.2 Gs while grunting versus 22 Gs without. Okay, so that recapitulates the finding tennis. Grunting helps the grunter. Now they did something like the original tennis study. They showed the students videos of someone kicking at the camera, and they had to guess if the kick was going high or low. And then they added the fake grunt, white noise sound on certain trials. And again, it slowed down people's responses by about 50 milliseconds, although it did not reduce the accuracy of the responses. So that's the study. That's the new study. And what it suggests is that grunting is an advantage for the grunter in terms of distracting the opponent. It's not necessarily, as Navratilova had suggested, that it's concealing some you know special information about the ball hitting the racket. It's just like someone yelling at you when you're trying to do something difficult. Now, what does this all mean for the question of whether grunting should be banned? I'm a little confused on this. On the one hand, as I said, I think if grunting is helping the grunter, that's fair game. But if it is kind of making things harder for the gruntee, that seems that seems a little uh, that like it ought to be against the rules. But I wonder from this study whether grunting would really be this distracting for an elite athlete. I mean, these they're testing just regular college students. Now, we've seen in other sports like the NBA that everyone's always trying to distract free throw shooters by waving their hands in the air, and it seems like it would work. Maybe it would distract an amateur player, but it has absolutely no effect on professional-level players. Their shooting per free throw percentage at home and on the road are identical if you look across the whole league. So I think the next step, before we come to any rash conclusions about what to do about grunting, we need to figure out, we need to use something like the same experiment. We need to look at professional athletes to figure out if grunting really distracts the top players in the world. Sinet and Kingstone, for their part, argue that grunting should not be considered cheating. Yes, they say a grunt may distract a gruntee, but it also helps the grunter, and that makes all the difference. The burden is firmly on the opponent in the end, they say to develop ways to cope with grunt. So with that in mind, I only have one more thought, and that is... <sighs> That's our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. I'd like to endorse Whistle Stop, a podcast for fans of presidential campaign history. John Dickerson of Slate's Political Gab Fest revisits a moment from the American Quadrennial Carnival. 
hear about the grand speeches, emergency strategies, baby kissing, and backstabbing that make each presidential election cycle so fascinating. To get a new show every two weeks, go to slate.com slash whistlestop. For Slate, I'm Daniel Engber. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.